Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to ask John Etheridge to come this morning. John's a member of our church and he's going to come and read some scripture and pray for us this morning. John, if you would. I'll be reading from uh, Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hand are faithful and just, and his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have, good, have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Pray. <clears throat> Father, I just pray <clears throat> for the, the billions of souls um, that, that don't have access to your word this morning. Father, just, just help us as a church, the, the, the universal church, just reach out to those people. Father, I just pray for the people that are meeting today in, in secrecy and uh, fear of condemnation um, and punishment. Father, just, just be with those people as they meet. And Father, as we have access to your word in, in a million different ways, and we have a beautiful church here to worship in this morning, just help us to, to make much of this time as we prepare to get into your word. But Father, also just to make much of you. And we pray. Our ushers are going to come for this morning's offering. And if as they are coming, uh, I'd ask them to come. And children, you're going to remain in here this morning since we're having the Lord's Supper. We have our children staying with us on these Sundays. So as our ushers are coming right now, I guess you guys are going to do some playing for us.
praying for us this morning. I ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll ask you to stand with me again in the honor of the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or one close to you. And you can turn there with us as well to, um, to Ephesians chapter 2 there in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll begin reading at verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for allowing us to be here again today to worship with our church family. And thank You for the time in Sunday school and the time of singing together just now. And Lord, our request would be that as we come this morning that in one of the songs we sang this morning, God, uh, that any affliction, uh, any um, anxiety that we may bring with us this morning that's in our life, Lord, that it might be eclipsed in knowing how great your love is for us and that our response might be fitting. Lord, I ask that you would teach us about yourself and, and what you've done for your church. Lord, we pray this morning for our nation that is so divided and, and so hostile to one another over so many issues or so many fault lines. Father, we pray that our life together as a church would stand in stark contrast so that those who live in our nation or in this world might see that the church is the one place where peace can be found because of Jesus Christ, who is Himself our peace. So Lord, may we boast in Christ alone and what He has done for us, that we are part of His church. Lead us to see this great truth this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you're continuing to keep track of the news and the controversy going on, the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, you, you've noticed uh, just a heightened sense of the fact, as it reflected in the prayer just now, of, of just how uh, divided our nation is. Are we one nation under God? When we say the Pledge of Allegiance, is it really true? Of course, we know when we say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, one nation under God, we, uh, we know what's implied there and what's in, implicit is that we were a nation founded upon Christian principles. And, and so that phrase is there probably for that reason. The reality is, is all nations are under God. You do know that, right? That God is sovereign over all nations. But when it comes to being a Christian nation, in which we would have in our pledge that we're under God. I think that's what a lot of people would mean by that. Um, it seems to be a great contradiction that in relation to a lot of social issues and moral issues, um, that we, we don't act like we, we're under God at all. And, and really the big picture about Supreme Court nominations and all this, it's all about, the, the, it's all about abortion. And whether or not Supreme Court justices will be conservative enough and godly enough and biblical enough to seek to overturn Roe versus Wade. Abortion is really the, the big issue here, along with gay rights and gay marriage and stuff like that, um, rulings on, on those things. That's, that has a lot to do with it. And our nation is certainly divided. Could it, is it true of our nation that we are indivisible, that we have liberty and justice for all? Well, we want to be, and that's what we were founded upon, but it sure doesn't seem that way. And so I mention that this morning because I'm not one of these preachers that gets up and wants to preach about America all the time because the church is not made up 
of merely Americans. It's made of people all around the world who are believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, what is the church? Uh, and I mentioned that this morning because it's on a lot of people's minds, and it leads into something I want to preach about here. And What is the church, though? I've been mentioning this definition for the last three Sundays. Now this fourth Sunday, the church comprised of all people who are true believers is God's holy dwelling place. Now, First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel, when we gather together, what are we? We are the church, but we're not saying that we're the only church. If you only Christians, if you can't be a Christian unless you come to First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel, we're not saying that. So we are a local church. So what is a local church? A local church like First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel is a visible manifestation of the church, of that definition. Again, the definition is the church comprised of all true believers, all people who are true believers, is God's holy dwelling place. Well, the local church, us right here this morning, are to be a visible manifestation of that reality. Visible. We're God's holy dwelling place, and the community is supposed to see that. So as we think about even our own community and, and we think about our own nation, what is it that people need to see about the church that stands in stark contrast to what we, the chaos we see around us? There's all kinds, not just political chaos, but all kinds of things. What must be true of our life together as a local church? If we're to be a visible manifestation of the church, which is God's holy dwelling place, what should our life together right here this morning as we live our lives together, what should that look like? Give you three things based on this passage of Scripture. Number one, something that should stand out about the church and a local church like ours is true unity. True unity. One nation under God? Well, we want to be that as a, an American nation, but is that true? It doesn't appear to be that way at all. So we may all stand and say the pledge in a football stadium together but just hate one another over many issues. That's a false unity. But in the church of the living God, in a local church like First Baptist Church Mount Carmel, what must stand in stark contrast is a true unity, even a supernatural unity. We, the church, we are one nation under God. Did you know that? First Peter says that you are a holy nation. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles. You, we, are a holy nation. God has a nation. And that nation is the church. The church is one nation under God. Look at what your Bible says here in verse 19. Look at this. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, he's saying to these Gentiles who were treat, who may have felt like they were second-class citizens in God's kingdom. It's not true. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow what? What's your Bible say? Fellow citizens. Citizens of what? A kingdom. A nation. This holy nation. We are, no matter what our backgrounds may be, if we're true believers in Jesus Christ, we are one nation, fellow citizens under God. And not only that, we're saints. With the saints, it says. That song, when the saints go marching in. I don't like it. Because one thing, it reminds me of Mardi Gras. And secondly, because of the words. When the saints go marching in. When the saints... Go marching in. Oh, how I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in, presumably into heaven. I want to be in that number, but I'm not sure if I'm in that number or not. I don't like that. I don't think that's what God inspired Paul to write to the Ephesian church here so they might want to and hope to be in that number. He's saying, you are fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. He's not talking about some special class of people that are, that are voted in after they die that we can pray to someday. That's unbiblical. Saints are people who are set apart by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look in your Bible in chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians, look at it. 
How does he address the Ephesian church? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, right? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So when he says you're fellow citizens with the saints, who's he referring to? Who are those other saints? All people who are true believers in Christ, even some of the first ones that have come into the church. They're, he's saying to these Gentile believers, you need to understand, you are just as much part of the church, God's holy nation, God's kingdom, as any apostle ever has been. As Peter or anybody else. They don't have any more privileges than you do. You are God's holy nation. So we come here this morning and the ground is level at the cross. We come here this morning and none of us are any better place than another when it comes to how we relate to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that should affect how we do relate to one another. Amen? That true unity should be sensed and sought and, and fought for as First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel. There's no hoops to jump through, no red tape, no special test to take, no waiting period. You are fellow citizens with the saints. Faith in Jesus, you're part of the nation. No second-class citizens. That, that means that anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ is part of this holy nation, you are a citizen. That means that citizen has a right to every, everything any citizen has a right to. So as a local church, and we have church membership, someone joins our church. We say, we believe based on what we're seeing and what they're saying, that this person's a, a true believer in Jesus. And we say, we want to, we're not making you a part of God's family. That's taken care of by the Holy Spirit. We're saying, we're welcoming you as part of this local church family. And you, and we're not going to treat you, we're not going to say you have to go through this waiting period before you, we don't say to people, or at least we shouldn't anyway, you've got to earn your time before you can speak up in a business meeting. No. No, once we vote on them as a member, uh, that person has every right. So what's that mean? The implication of that is we need to be very careful that we, how we bring in members into the church. We need to be very careful that as a local church, when we think about formal church membership, that we make sure that we have talked to people about their relationship with Jesus. So that's the reason we have membership class and Pastor Steve sits down and talks with people about their, uh, their conversion experience and what the gospel is and so forth. Because the last thing you want to do is say, you're a citizen, we, we believe you're a citizen of God's kingdom and, and, and we want you to come in and have all the, the rights that we do here in our local church and vote and speak up and all those things and then you brought in somebody unconverted. We don't, yeah, that can still happen, but we, we want to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen. It will affect our unity. So we are one nation under God and we are the family of God. Isn't that what he says in verse 19? What else? Look at your Bible. Look at what else he says. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you are God's holy nation and we are the family of God. We are one nation under God and we are the family of God. When it comes to uh, having a meal, sometimes, you know, we kind of do a free-for-all. I don't know how families do things, but sometimes, you know, you actually set the table. And you have table settings and so forth. And, you know, in our house, there are six of us. And so if we set five place settings and everybody's present at the house, but we only set five place settings, then uh, somebody's going to feel like they've been left out. We say, Josiah, sorry, but, you know... We, we, we just don't want you eating with us today. You know, we just, we just don't want you part of our family anymore. That, well, that wouldn't be right. When we take part in the Lord's Supper, we're very careful that, as we do this morning, to recognize that we're not the only church. Okay, we're, part, we're a local church. And so what we do, because we recognize we're part of the family of God, is we say, even if you're not a member of this local church, you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us because there's one true church. So you're welcome to participate if you're a true believer, baptized believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that we need to be able to have fellowship with other true believers in Christ. 
Because we are the family of the living God. We don't want to treat each other differently. So everyone, and this, this is really just a real simple point here. It should be. I've not observed in our church that when people come here and they're true believers in Jesus, that we treat them differently based on their skin color or based on how they live or their socioeconomic status. I've not observed that. Now, if we're not careful, we could give people that perception because maybe we don't talk to them, we're not friendly to them. We, we get over here in our little holy huddle and greet all our friends and this person's sitting over here by themselves and nobody says a word to them. I mean, we can give people that perception. So we've got to be careful to nurture this unity, right? And this fellowship and this, uh, um, what you call hospitality. We need to work on as a church. So maybe there's some things we can do as a church family if true unity is to mark us off from the world as a local church here at First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel. We need to really work on nurturing that, 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 that fellowship. And sometimes it's people's own fault. You know, you want to come and you want to sit and you want to leave and get out of here just as quick as you can. And then you say, no, I don't know nobody. Well, no wonder. And there's opportunities for you to fellowship and get involved as well. So that's an ongoing thing we have to work hard on that every church does. But number one is true unity. Secondly, strong assurance. Strong assurance. Why do you say that, preacher? Because I'm looking at verse 20. That's why I'm saying it. I look at verse 20, and I believe it's what he's talking about. You have this, this unity. You are God's family. You are part of God's nation. And it seems like he's wanting them to have assurance of this. And so what does that assurance that they have equal access to God, just like any other believer in Jesus, what's, what's that rest upon? The foundation. And it rests rest upon, I'm going to tell you, the foundation of Scripture. The foundation of Scripture, what God has said. Look at what the Bible says in verse 20. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, first of all. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, some people take that to mean that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation. In some sense, they did. But it doesn't say that there. It says, build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets are part of the foundation. What this means is this, when God spoke and revealed the gospel to the apostles, and we can get to a big, long discussion about who these prophets were. Some would refer to those as Old Testament prophets. I think he's talking about New Testament prophets here. And then we could get into a long discussion about whether we have the gift of prophecy today or not. And I don't want to go there right now, and that's not where the text is leading us. But God had spoken through His holy apostles and prophets. In fact, if you look in chapter 3, verse 5, look at chapter 3, verse 5, that this gospel, he says... Verse 5 of chapter 3, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, where the Old Testament prophets were, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So God's revealed something now in the day of these believers that Paul's writing to through His holy apostles and prophets. He's revealed this gospel. And it's this gospel that these apostles and prophets have, have written about. And they've, and they've preached as well. as And so... When they wrote these things down, this was the gospel revealed. And as Jude says, once for all delivered to the saints. This is why we don't add books to the Bible anymore. The canon of Scripture is closed. That foundation was laid. The, was laid. the apostles and prophets, that foundation was laid. It's the Bible it's talking about. The Scripture, what they spoke about, what they preached about, what we have right in front of us this morning. So what is it that your faith, how can you know? That you are part of God's family. On what basis can you claim that to be true? Because the Bible, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He hath said, than to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled? This foundation that's been laid, this confidence that we have is founded upon His Word. And of that foundation, Christ is what? What's verse 20 say? Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. He determines how everything lies in that foundation and thus how the living stones, which are the members of God's church, are built as well. The Christ, the cornerstone. So you have God, the Word of God is what we rest upon, what God has said, what God has promised, and our assurance lies upon what God has done in Christ, the cornerstone. 
Christ is the cornerstone. Who He is and what He's done. God's had a plan, His Word, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And God has executed that plan through Jesus Christ, through His death and through His resurrection. Sometimes people say to themselves, when they experience the death of maybe a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or someone close to them, that I'm going to miss them so terribly. They were my rock. I've heard that many times when I've ministered to families who've lost a loved one. That person was my rock. Yesterday, some of you remember James Shepherd. Uh, Brother Ships, who I referred to him, he preached a couple of times here. He was kind of my mentor uh, growing up. And I received a call yesterday morning that he had passed away. He was found uh, in his uh, home. Of course, his wife had died a couple of years ago, and he was extremely lonely and, and uh, was continuing to serve the Lord. And so sad and uh, still thankful that he's where he wants to be. But in many ways... When I think of Brother Shep, he's my rock. What do we mean by that? We mean that when chaos is going on or hard things are going on in our life, you could call up your mom before she died, and she was your rock, right? She was always there. She was always faithful. She would always encourage you. Or I'd call up Brother Shep, and I know he'd be walking with Jesus, and he would encourage, and he would give me the word. He was the rock. He was steady, not perfect. And your mom was not perfect, neither your dad or those friends that you might refer to as your rock. The true rock is the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Moms and dads and close Christian friends may fail, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He is the rock. And what we need to do as a church, as a local church, to have this strong assurance is be sure that we're building up one another in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the way we disciple our children and the way we meet together, that Christ Jesus is, is central to everything that we do and nothing else, is, nothing else would overshadow Him. Here's a practical thing about this strong assurance I want to share with you this morning. I hope you listen very closely. Your assurance doesn't lie in how you feel. I mean, sometimes you're going to get up on Monday morning and you're not going to have such a great morning or you're going to go through your week and you're not going to feel saved. Well, I just don't feel saved. Well, be feeling had nothing to do with getting you saved anyway. I mean, you may have felt something and you may not have. But the way you're brought into God's family is by grace through faith in what God has promised in His Word, written down through the holy apostles and prophets, and what God has executed through His Son, the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not based on, I'm not feeling like I'm saved today. My confidence is in, what did God say? And what has God done? And what has God promised? He said, if I confess that I have sinned against Him, and I've returned from my sin, and I'm trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's rock-solid assurance. So when you're going through things like that, and you're questioning, maybe even having doubts about your salvation, and the Bible does say examine ourselves and see whether or not we're in the faith. We don't want to be too quickly to presume things. You need to ask yourself this. I'm having a bad day or I'm having a hard week, but when it comes right down to it, even though I may have, I may have struggled with the same sin last night, you may say to yourself, the one that keeps biting you again and again, am I still, am I still trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross for my sins? Do I love Him? Am I still following Him? Am I, am I, am I a repenter? Do I want to turn from that? And do I want to keep following Christ? If that, if you could say yes to that, then, then remember, that's where your confidence is. And he said, if you are a repenter, a truster, a believer in Christ, you're saved. Now, sometimes that's where we need the church, ain't it? We need other people to come in and point out evidences of grace in our life and so forth because we beat ourselves up too much sometimes and sometimes not enough. We need people to point out the deficiencies as well.
One thing that needs to characterize us as a church is true unity, but secondly, strong assurance. You know why that is? Why that, how does that stand in stark contrast to the world? When the world's in chaos and things are seen to be falling apart, you know, it's hard on us as too. We're all human as well. But if the worst thing, and I've said this many times, that could happen to us is not going to happen, then we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Philippians 1.6 says. For to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, there's a strong assurance in those words of Philippians 1 verse 21 that the world can't understand. It stands in stark contrast to the world. That we need to be able to say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here I am. I'm going through this. My heart's being ripped out. And, I, and I'm feeling anxious. But I'm going to call upon the Lord. And I'm going to have this sustaining peace that confounds the anxieties that the world has, that unbelievers has. Here I am. I'm in a Philippian jail, Paul says. I'm doing jail time for Jesus. Don't want to be here. like to be out. But I can do all things for Christ which strengthens me. So I quote those verses from Philippians because it's known as the epistle of joy. One thing that's that, that strong assurance that we have when we're resting in what Christ has done and not on completing the work ourselves, but in what Jesus has already finished, there's a, there's a sustaining peace and joy that stands in stark contrast to the fragile lives of those around us. There's a true unity we must have and a strong assurance. And thirdly, a peculiar holiness about us. A peculiar holiness. Look at verse 21 in your Bible. About this foundation and about this cornerstone, it says in verse 21, in whom the whole structure, talking about the church, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's a, a peculiar holiness about it. And first of all, we say that because it says we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. So in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle where God met with His people, but only the high priest could go in the holiest place there. Same was true about the physical building called the temple later on. But now, we are living stones. We are part of that temple. Not only are we part of that temple, God dwells in that temple. Look at what the Bible says in verse 22. You're looking at your Bible. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are God's temple. We're a, this, this, this holy temple. And we are God, a dwelling place for God. So we're a holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place for God. How does God dwell in us? That, that seems mysterious that God dwells in us. Well, by the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in us. One day, God Himself, his, where He is in, presently in heaven, He will be on a new heavens and new earth and will be in His very presence forever. Right now, He indwells us by the Holy Spirit. Now, just think of the magnitude of implications of this. We are God's holy temple. God, we're God's dwelling place. Well, what's this mean about us? That we need to be a holy people. What, what, did, what did God envision in chapter 1, verse 4? Look at it. Chapter 1, verse 4, God said about these people, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He wants us to be holy and blameless. He, he, wants, he calls us out, this, this assembly, this gathering, to be a holy nation, this, this, this family of His, this, this building, this people that He's dwelling in. So what's this mean, church, for us, First Baptist of Mount Carmel? As the building of God, that means we need to be working on the building. There's an old song, working on a building, working on a building. Well, we need to be working on the building. Sometimes us Baptists get all wrapped up in this physical building too much. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm thankful for our trustees and all the work that David Saltzgaver does around here on our building. All that's important. We need a place to meet. But if we had to, this building fell down, we'd find a place somewhere, right? The building we need to be most consumed about 
is each person sitting here this morning that professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the building we need to be working on. Notice it says in verse 19 and 20, it uses ongoing tense verbs, grows. It doesn't say it's completed, it's growing. It's being built, it says in verse 22, right? So there's this process of growth. I believe it's talking about numerical growth. Other people are going to become living stones that God has chosen to be part of this building. And the church is part of that, teaching and preaching the Word of God. And in its context here, it seems to be about building up one another who are already believers as well. Yesterday I went over to the Fowler's home and helped cut up chickens for a little while. We wanted to see their process, and so their whole family's involved in the process. Matt mentioned that if he, he got up and did one of the chickens by himself, I guess, and, and realized, you know, if I'm going to do this all by myself, this is going to take a long time. So each member of the family had a job to do. And the process went a lot quicker. Some of them were dipping the chicken in, getting the feathers all you know heated up and all that kind of stuff and cutting slots and throats and all that. Sorry, I know you're going to go to lunch. And some were, okay, never mind. You understand. Everybody had a part of the process here. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 says this. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped... When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how does the body grow? How does the church grow when each part of the body is working properly? Just like each member of the Fowler family was working on fowls yesterday. No pun intended, right? If... (laughs) Each, each, each person's got their responsibility in the body of Christ to do something much more than butchering chickens. It's to build up the church. So the way the church is built is that each member says, I've got a responsibility to this local church, especially if you formally committed in membership to this local church. You don't take that haphazardly. And what is that? To grow in holiness, to grow in sanctification. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he says all of this wonderful, beautiful things about the gospel. And then he says in chapter 4, now let me tell you something. You need to walk it out. You need to live like it. This calling that you have is God's family, God's holy nation. Now walk it out in holiness. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And over and over and over in chapter 4 through 6, he uses the word walk, walk, walk. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say to you and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking about unsaved people. Don't walk like that anymore. Your life needs to be different. You need to be growing in holiness. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, or verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 15 of chapter 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He's talking about our walk, about how we live. There's a peculiar holiness about the church that must characterize us and stand in stark contrast to the world. So my question for you this morning before I pray is this. Since the holiness of the church is God's vision for the church, should it not be our aim to grow in holiness and sanctification as a church? And another question along with that is this. Are there not implications here for how the church practices church membership and conducts its rescue operation in relation to church discipline? That if we're to grow in holiness and that members of our church are not living in a, they're not walking in holiness, we should seek to rescue them and not just let it happen. Go to them and plead with them and talk with them lovingly. And if over time they refuse to repent, whether that be because of some immoral issue they're involved in and won't turn away from, or because they just don't want to come back to church anymore. And the Bible says to go to church and encourage and exhort one another, but they're not going to come. They're just going to not be part of the process anymore, and the body suffers because of it. What's the Bible tell us to do? It says 
don't set them a place at the table anymore. You discipline them. You refuse to serve the Lord's Supper to them. And church family, if peculiar holiness is to mark the church, then we cannot continually overlook unrepentant church members. That has to be dealt with as a church family. If peculiar holiness is to mark us as a church. It's a peculiar love that sends us on this rescue operation, right? But also the willingness to love people enough to say, Brother, I don't know if you're a... I can never say whether you are anybody's truly saved or not, but you are not acting like it. And I have talked to you, we have talked to you. And in order to get your attention, we need to say we're no longer confident enough to even retain you as a member of this church. Now that all of a sudden shivers up our spine. That, but at the same time, we should want that. Because I, I, I know I can be pig-headed and stubborn, just ask my wife. I, I, I should want that if I was ever so blinded by sin in my life that, that someone would love me enough to come to me and say, Steve, you need to, don't you see what's going on? Steve, stop. Steve, if, if, if you don't stop, I, I'm not even sure you're, I'm not even confident enough to say that you're a, you're a believer anymore. How can I keep saying that you are and refer to you as a church member when you're not acting like it? And that should cause me to say, wait, 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 wait a minute. That, that, now you've got my attention. And maybe God might use that as a means. That person may get mad, never come back to church. That's what everybody says. Oh, they'll never come back if you do that. They might not. If they don't, they probably never were a believer to begin with. Then again, they very well might, and I've seen it happen. Let me close with this. I, I'm thankful that, you know, Lynn Saltz gave her, she's going to begin a care ministry in our church. We had a care not, not long ago. We called it the church attempting to rescue and encourage. And we sent out a bunch of letters to members and so forth. And, and uh, some have been sick and then some had not been here in a long time. And, and so uh, uh, Lynn wants to continue doing that. And so she's going to enlist some people to help her do that. And that's a real intentional way for us to be doing what God's called us to, to seek to rescue those going astray in a loving way. And let me close with this. It is a great blessing to be part of the gospel, part of God's family. Now, I thought about the words of the song we were singing this morning. All authority, every victory is yours. You remember those words we were singing? I hope you were listening and singing them. All authority, every victory is yours. And we are sinners. We are children of wrath, the Bible says. What? All His authority as the supreme judge of the universe could rightly be used to level us and to wipe us out. But instead, as that song says, seated above, enthroned in the Father's love, He never sinned and suffered as if He did, destined to die, poured out for all mankind. This is what God has done for us. I don't know who's going to sit on the Supreme Court, but I know who sits in the heavens, and I know what He's done for me. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which He's committed to me against that day. And that leads me to want to live in a way that stands in stark contrast to what I see in the world. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Father, we bow before You right now and we thank You so much for what Jesus has done for us and the promises that have been made in Your Word that have been given to us through the apostles and those holy prophets. We pray, Father, that we would revel and, and, and rejoice in what Christ has done. Lord, we pray for those, maybe even here among us this morning, who are not believers. Lord, we pray that they would see that they need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins, that they wouldn't seek to be their own Savior. We pray for wayward believers wayward church members that may not be amongst us this morning, but you know where they're at. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be very intentional to seek to rescue. Lord, grant us the desire to to live in a way that pleases you and to honor you. We pray for those among us today who have not trusted in Jesus, that you would show them this truth. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So now before we take part in the Lord's Supper, we'll sing this song together that talks about this intimate fellowship we have because of Jesus and what He's done. If you'd like to come and pray during this time, I'd love to pray with you, or you can pray alone, or I can talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart. But let's stand and let's worship our God together as one holy nation and as God's family this morning. mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. perfect sacrifice I've been brought near your enemy you've made your friend pouring out the riches of your glorious grace your mercy and your kindness know no end your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once you're in on me, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. 
A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.